Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we see how someone flips the record of their life, more specifically, where an atheist unexpectedly becomes a Christian. There's something fascinating about dramatic life change, when someone becomes entirely different than they were before, in the way they think and act, in the way they see and live life, their perspectives and purposes completely changed. This kind of life transformation not only surprises the people around them, but it often stuns even the one who was changed, for they never saw it coming. Most atheists never consider even a remote possibility of believing in God, much less becoming a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, and yet it actually can and does happen. But that kind of radical change takes everyone off guard and raises a sense of curiosity. It causes everyone to wonder how someone could shift their understanding of themselves and the world in such a striking and powerful way. What happened? More importantly, why did it happen? In our story today, Craig Northwood found himself on the other side of a tremendous paradigm shift 10 years ago, moving from a self-described atheist, alcoholic, drug user, and fairly unpleasant character to someone who now passionately proclaims his Christian faith as both real and true. In fact, He has made this his life's mission as a Christian pastor and apologist, now running an apologetics organization, and we'll let him tell us about all of that. But that's quite a change. Let's take a listen to see what prompted this startling transformation, why it happened, and how his life has changed. Welcome to the Side B Podcast, Craig. It's so great to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself where we can locate that wonderful dialect of yours? <laughs> my, my Welsh accent, which I try to cover up. Yes. So um, <laughs> so I, um, my name is Craig, as you know, Craig Northwood. I, I live in South Wales. I live in a little town at the moment called Astrid Manach, which um, almost sounds like you're trying to clear your throat or something. Um, <laughs> I didn't grow up here. I grew up in a slightly larger town in South Wales. Um, yeah, I've, I've been a, a Christian for, I actually realized this today I've been a Christian for, I was actually saved 10 years ago this week, but it, I, I only realized that earlier today, which is, which is, um, a nice way to spend my anniversary, I suppose. Yes, it is. Yes. I'm looking forward to really unraveling that story and the, what happened uh, mm. prior to your conversion, uh, because Obviously, I think there's a lot to it, and I'm just excited to know your story. So why don't we start back in your childhood, really? Why don't you tell me a little bit about where you grew up, your family, and whether or not religion was on the radar in the picture at all, in your culture and in your family? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I I did grow up in South Wales. Um, I'm from a, a fairly large family. I have two brothers and two sisters. And uh, religion wasn't really a large part of, of when I was growing up. My parents did occasionally take us to church when I was quite young. Um, I think I've, I've got a vague recollection that, that my mother was hurt by somebody in the church, but I think I was about 10 when we stopped going, if that. 
So it's it's all quite a sort of distant memory, really. My my mother continued to believe. My father kind of continued to believe. Um, I think in some sense, but they were never active in the church. They never really went on a regular basis. We certainly never went on a regular basis. And and as I was growing up, I didn't really have anything to do with with Christianity. My elder brother and sister did for a short time. They went to youth, um, like Christian youth groups, but they kind of drifted away. Um, and I I didn't really have any interest in Christianity. And then as I was growing up, I, I, I kind of got to my teenage years and I um, I was sort of cursed with this idea that I was very clever. And I, I now know that I wasn't particularly clever. I was just interested in, in things that clever people do and clever people write about. But I thought I was very clever. So that kind of made me extremely arrogant, unfortunately. So as far as I was concerned, um, I was very much sort of thinking along the same sort of lines as new atheism, you know, where if you can't prove it scientifically to me, then it's obviously rubbish. So I, I didn't have any time for Christianity. And as I got older, that became more and more pronounced. So I, I, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very pleasant towards anyone with any sort of religious belief, really. Okay. Uh, were there, would you consider, well, South Wales and where you grew up, was it nominally Christian? Would you say that there was very much of a Christian influence? Did, were there friends in your culture that had any kind of, would you would consider any kind of real faith at all? No, no, not really at all. It isn't, um. I think South Wales in particular now it's 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 very secular. Um I knew very few people who were Christians as I was growing up. I don't know if that was just because we weren't plugged into that bit of the culture, but very very rarely would I meet anybody who would identify as a Christian. Um the UK is not a particularly Christian country, I think. It I think we're seeing some sort of a bit of a resurgence in big cities now, but you tend to find the older generation, especially where I've lived, the older generation would be more inclined towards going to church. But no, certainly not in my age group. So I, I wasn't really exposed to a great deal of Christianity. And when your brother and sister went to youth group, was it just more of an activity, you think, or there was um, no real connection with it there either? I'm I'm not really sure. I, I think because I wasn't interested in it. I never really took in whether or not they were that serious about it. I know that I, um, I, I used to play sort of, do you know, like role playing games, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and all of that kind of yeah. thing. I, when I was a teenager, I used to play those quite a lot. And my sister was convinced that this was basically the work of the Antichrist invading my life. And, you know, Satan was going to come and take me away because I was interested in these games. And she used to give me these dreadful pamphlets about how evil role playing games were and things. Um, I mean, look, you know, in a sense, looking back on them now, they, they are some. It, some of it can be a little bit dark, I suppose, but that was my only experience of it. Was my my sister giving me as a teenager these dreadful pamphlets and me just thinking, "You, you must be kidding! You don't you don't really <laughs> believe this, do you?" So that, in a sense, probably drove me a little bit further away. Yeah, so it probably put you off towards the moralism of religion and mm. that that sort of thing. So when you were embracing atheistic thought, you were reading, were you reading some of the atheistic literature or listening to some of the new atheists? Or... Um, I, I think, I think a little bit. I mean, when I was, when I was a teenager, you know, the, the internet wasn't really a thing. Um, I think it was just kind of getting up and running. So I wasn't really exposed to 
like any kind of atheist social media or anything like that. And I, I was, I was a big fiction reader, but I wasn't much of a, a reader of anything along those. I was kind of aware of Richard Dawkins, and I, I think I might have had one of his books, which I kind of flicked through a bit. But the little bits that I looked at, I just, it, it kind of resonated with me, and I thought, yes, yes, this is this is all, you know. I was still in my extremely arrogant phase, and I was like, yes, yes, I, I know all of this. Yes, the God of the Bible is really, really bad and horrible, and and I, I didn't actually know anything about it. Looking back on it now, I didn't really know anything about Christianity, but I kind of made all these assumptions and and had all these ideas about you know um, the Crusades and the hypocrisy and you know the Catholic Church covering up all these things and and all this kind of business, and I. I just kind of removed myself from it in that way, really. So it wasn't so much a case of studying it and coming to that conclusion. I just kind of was was very unpleasant, as I said. So, yes, there there's sometimes just a, a general presumption about Christians and Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be institutional or just the, the the church or the people associated with it. Like you had mentioned, a lot of negative. Uh, attributes that you attributed to to people who believed in religion mm. and faith um, and I guess particularly coming from a place of being clever or one of the brights or however you wanted to, to see yourself <laughs> it, was, it, it was probably a, a relatively easy place to be I think I mean would you when you're in a position of, of presuming one position, and then there's someone else over there that you're presuming who they are. Mm. Um, would you say that there are a lot of, like you said, you hadn't really investigated it. It was just mm. something you presumed a very yeah. kind of a default position, if you were, because it served your purposes in a sense, would you say? Yeah, yeah, very much. I I think I was just more comfortable with the idea of thinking that I knew better than people and thinking that I... Um, thinking that I understood things better than than they did and it it was probably it in my mind it was probably more trouble than it was worth investigating it because as far as I was concerned I'd made up my mind anyway you know then they were wrong and I was right so I would just kind of distance myself from from anything like that really yeah now you and it Sometimes I, I, I'm very interested in the idea of dismissing religion or dismissing Christianity, and that's one thing. But sometimes it seems that among those who dismiss it are also a bit contemptuous of it, mm. I guess you could say. Yes. Um, what do you suppose fuels a contemptuousness for faith and religion and Christianity? Um. That's, did, that's did a you very f- good question. I mean, I think I think that could go any any number of ways. From my from my personal perspective, um, I mean, at, at the risk of sort of repeating myself, because I because I was under this impression that I was very clever, because I was very arrogant, very full of myself. People who believed something that I thought I understood better than I, I thought I understood things better than them. So to me, they were just, they were just ignorant and just blind and just, um, I, I used to, I used to think anybody that was really just was really stupid, which is a horrible thing to think really. But, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think it was just kind of a a self superiority from, from my perspective. I know obviously that wouldn't be the case for everybody. Mm. 
So there was a, a sense of rational superiority in a mm. sense. Yes. So this was in, you said your teenage years in high yes. school. And did you, did you have friends that believed similarly to you or was this a kind of something that you just decided in, 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 a, in an independent way, just forged through and decided you were an atheist? I think, um, I can remember one one specific conversation actually. A few a few of us were sitting around one morning just before school, waiting for the register be, to be taken. And um, one one guy in my in my group started saying something about how he had been told or he had read somewhere or something that the idea of the devil was made up in the middle of ages, middle ages, and and it was just you know old English for the evil. And God was basically just old English for good and just coming out with this, this, this absolute nonsense. But because I was coming to a point in my life where I wanted to believe this kind of thing, I seized on this. And I think this, in, in a strange way, this kind of, this accelerated the speed at which I, I distanced myself from Christianity and, and had more and more. And I looked down more and more on people who are Christians because I just, I seized on this idea that it had all been made up in the Middle Ages as a sort of some sort of control or something like that um and and i just kind of ran with that and it didn't occur to me to investigate it or to ask anybody about it or to wonder whether or not his wherever he got this information from was reliable it just mm -hmm. it was um it, it was basically just feeding my prejudice it, it mm -hmm. fed into my biases and and i think that can be a case with with a lot of people christian and non-christian i mean I, I wouldn't want to pigeonhole anybody i i think that it's very easy to be given something that confirms what we already think and just run with it and have no regard whatsoever for the possibility that it might not be correct. But I, yeah, I was especially prone to that when I was younger. So that, that probably sped me along somewhat. Mm. Yeah. I think we're all guilty of confirmation bias and confirmation many, bias. That was what I was yeah, trying to think of. Yeah. Yeah. In many regards, we, we oftentimes live in an echo chamber of hearing the things we want mm. to hear. I, yeah. I heard you say, I wanted to believe it. So mm, it's easy to, to grab onto something that seems to confirm your perspective. And, and it really takes a lot, I think, to get beyond your bubble in a sense um, and to really see uh, reality and be willing to investigate and hear both sides of the story. So mm. um, I think we're all guilty of that at a certain way, in certain ways at different times in our lives. But but so you wanted to believe atheism and you, you grabbed hold of it and you ran mm. with it. And so this was when you were still in high school. So, mm. so walk us along from here. From there, then I, I went on to um, college and surrounded myself probably with quite similar people and I did um I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure how familiar you are with with sort of how our education system plays out so our our high school finishes sort of at 16 and then you do something called A levels which is like your pre-university education so I did an A level then in philosophy and um that you would have thought that that would have opened my mind up a little bit and you would have hoped that I would have sort of gathered a little bit more critical thinking skills and started to question things in my own beliefs properly. But all I really did was the any element of sort of religious philosophy that was included in that. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't in any way a particularly in depth course, 
um, you know, I was 17, 18 years old and it was just kind of a, I'd never really looked at philosophy before, but again, feeding into my own kind of arrogance, I thought, well, this, this will make me sound clever to people if I'm doing this A-level in philosophy. So any religious education, uh, any religious philosophy element that was there, I, I would just sort of look at the traditional arguments for God and then, and then I'd be far more interested in the ways they could be refuted. And I'd be far more interested in the counter arguments than I was in the arguments for. So I finished that. Um, I then went to university very briefly then for, it was only, I think I was there for three or four months and I was doing a, a joint degree in English and philosophy, uh, literature and philosophy. Um, I left there then and I, I wanted, I decided after a few months, I didn't want to do humanities. I wanted to do a science. So I wanted to do a, a physics degree. That's what I really wanted. Uh, but some circumstances, um, through through a number of circumstances, really, I, I then didn't end up going back to university. So I got, you know, a not particularly fulfilling job. Um, I kind of drifted about a bit. I, I wandered from this thing to that thing. I and I, I was I was drinking more and more heavily at this point. This was. I think, you know, the majority of teenagers experiment with alcohol. And I was I was kind of the one in the group who people would occasionally say, oh, you, you know, you're a bit fond of your drink, aren't you? And sort of hint in that kind of direction. But um, I obviously didn't take any notice of that. So as I as I was reaching my early 20s, I was I was just drinking more and more. Um, I I started playing in bands. Um, I was more and more involved in, you know, the drinking kind of culture. Um, and, and through my twenties then, you know, I, I, I became more unpleasant. I became more arrogant. I became more contemptuous of people who had any sort of religious belief. I became more convinced of my own superiority. Um, and then as I got towards sort of my thirties, it sort of turned from being somebody who drinks too much and people occasionally pointing out to, you know, occasionally needing a drink first thing in the morning to, to kind of steady myself a little bit, you know, um, mm -hmm. to, to try and sort of feel a bit better from the night before so that I could go into work. Um, my parents then divorced when I was in my mid-30s-ish. Uh, early 30s, actually, sorry. Um, and about the same time, I had a blood clot on my brain. And oh we only discovered this when I started having seizures. So I, I, I developed epilepsy. They sent me for MRI scans, discovered the clot on my brain. Um, this made me, as, as you'd imagine, particularly ill. Foolishly, I started, I was, I was then off work sick for, for some months before I had an operation to remove it. And when I had the operation, they said to me, you, you need to stay off work now for at least, I think it was six months they gave me. So I was in the position where I was sitting around the house. I was still being paid for a, a period. Um, I was still being fully paid for, for a period of my sick leave. So I was sitting around the house on my own, very full of myself with a, a gradually accelerating drink problem and with money coming in. So from there on it was just rapidly downhill and i i then got to the stage then where i was 
um, it, it got to the point where I would literally lose like a week to two weeks at a time. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't know where I'd been or what I'd done. Um, I was living with my mother by this point. I was sort of, you know, 30, 30 something year old guy living with my mother, sitting in the spare room all day, drinking cheap vodka. I'd lost my job. I was living on benefits. My poor mother, you know, um, doing her best to just basically try and get me to see that I needed help. Um, and at this point, because I was drinking so much, this this point is, is a little bit hazy in my memory, but I'll kind of do my best to piece it together. So at this point, two, two people, I don't even, I can't even remember how the meeting came about, but a couple, dear friends of mine now, a couple by the name of um, Faye and Kenny, Brandy, they, they were from Scotland originally, they, they came around to my house and they came around to to tell me about how Jesus had freed them both from a life of crime and heroin addiction. And I I was a little bit kind of full of myself during this meeting, sitting there with a, a, a large vodka in my hand, listening to them talk, and I would sort of give them difficult questions. And they were so loving and they're so gracious and they and they did their best and they were there for a long time and eventually they left. And before they left, you know, they gave me a number and they said, we work for a Christian rehabilitation um, unit. And they said, if you need help, we will help you. And that, to me, that just absolutely, and I never would have admitted it at the time and I wouldn't have admitted it for a long time after. But to me, that was just the most unbelievable thing that these people who I had never met before had come to my house, you know, and dealt with me sitting there being extremely rude and extremely arrogant to their faces while they were trying to tell me about how Jesus had changed their life and offering to help me. And I, I there was a bit of me that wanted them to just get fed up of me and, and leave and never come back. But to close our, our meeting with, if you want help, we will help you. And that really struck a chord with me. And it was it was some weeks before I eventually just phoned them and I just said, I, I, I do need help. Please help me. So I went into the rehab. But I still went in with this idea, you're all deluded. You're all idiots. I know better than you. I'm going to go into this rehab for a few weeks and get myself off the drink. And then I'm going to go. And I don't want any of your Bible stuff. And I don't want any of your Jesus nonsense. And I don't want any of you preaching at me or anything like that. We're going to quickly pause our story for a moment so that I can tell you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute. For over 40 years, the Institute has been committed to developing wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate, share, defend, and live their faith in personal and public life. Please consider making a donation to the C.S. Lewis Institute. To donate, go to our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org and click Donate. Thank you. Now let's get back to our story. Wow, Craig... When you were in this place, obviously you knew you needed help physically mm. and you were willing to submit, even in a Christian environment, to 
whatever nonsense they had, if they could help <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, uh, with with your addiction withdrawal or you know, I I wonder in in those months and those weeks where you were isolated, sitting by yourself. And I know you had said you hadn't really known or investigated much about Christianity. You just had a kind of an animus towards it. Had you mm. really thought about, especially like through your brain, uh, your blood clot on your brain, that surgery and all of that, did did um, did you really confront what death was or meaning in life as you were sitting there within an atheist worldview? Did you did you contemplate? your own naturalistic atheism and what that meant for your life at all? Um, honestly, no. And and you would think that I would, you would think that something like that would cause somebody to sit back and take notice. But I think I'd, I'd been drinking so much by this point. I mean, I mean, at this point in my life, um, probably partly due to the amount that I was drinking, but I mean, I was, I was just ridiculously depressed and I wasn't particularly by the time I went for the operation, I wasn't particularly concerned about whether or not I would survive it, which which is awful looking back on it, but I was just very disinterested in anything. So I think the, the neurosurgeon, you know, I went to meet him before the operation and he sort of laid out everything and he explained the risks and everything like that. And he said, do you have any questions? And I just said, no, not really. And I think that surprised him because, I mean, I think the majority of people probably would have had some something they wanted to talk about some questions that they they wanted to know about the possibly their you know their chances of coming out of this unscathed or something but i i didn't really care and and i continued to not care after i came out i continued to i didn't really care when i lost my job i didn't really care when all of my friends just kind of gradually gave up on me um i didn't I didn't really care about anything. So I wasn't really questioning anything. I was just kind of sitting there and drinking and I wasn't really thinking anything past my next bottle of cheap vodka, to be honest. Quite bleak. Uh, <laughs> really. Yes. Yeah. Very, very bleak. So all, yeah, all the more reason why it would be really extraordinary for someone to come in and say, we'll help you even mm. at the point when you really didn't care. Um, but there must have been something, something there or some reason to live or some mm. desire for your life to be better than it was. What yeah. that made you decide, okay, I'll submit myself to whatever this is. It's got to be better than what you were experiencing at the time, I mm. would imagine. So, I think, yeah. Go on, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Um, just thinking back on it now, I, I think the only thing, the only thing really that sort of led me to, to finally go and get the help that they were offering was, uh, my mother. And it wasn't through her sort of begging me to go or anything like that. Um, I somehow after, after that meeting, I, I became, I gradually became aware finally of the sheer misery that I must be putting her through and how dreadfully I treated her and, and what an awful son and an awful human being I was for, you know, basically living in her house. I wasn't giving her any money towards bills. You know, she was working, she was basically keeping a roof over my head when I was, you know, like I said, I was, I was around about a 30 year old man at this point. Um, and, you know, she'd come home and she'd finally pass out 
passed out drunk on the floor and and I think I gradually came to realize how badly I I treated her and I just thought well I don't care what happens to my life but she shouldn't have to put up with this and I think that's all that really finally broke through my skull really was was realizing that I couldn't do that to my mother anymore and and that was it it wasn't any sense of self-preservation or anything there's some something beautiful though about at least there was a selflessness on some level to care about mm-hmm. your mother who had cared so much for you so um so you you went into this facility whatever it mm-hmm. was why don't you talk to us about that so it was um i went in there thinking i don't want any of your jesus nonsense or your bible rubbish and unfortunately well fortunately really but from my perspective then unfortunately it was very, very much, as you'd imagine, focused on Jesus and focused on the Bible. It was um, it was kind of a rehab home, really. There were 10 men living there. And they, they had, it was a very structured day, and I wasn't obviously used to structure. Um, most of the people in there had come from heroin or cocaine addiction. There were one or two others there that had come from a drink background. Um, almost everybody in there the day that I arrived, there were there were ten of us in total. I think there was nine of them were from Scotland, and the Scottish accent is is it can be quite impenetrable when you've got two Scotsmen talking to each other, and <laughs> and they their their accent sort of they they kind of tone their accent down. I think a little bit when you're from the far north of Scotland, they tone their accent down a little bit when they're talking to somebody who isn't from Scotland. Well. I was just withdrawing from the drink, so my my brain was completely gone. I, I I didn't know where I was, you know, I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate, and I was surrounded by all these men who were talking, and I couldn't understand anything they were saying. Um, the program there, the structure really was, they would give us, you had a half hour meeting every morning, which was pray and reading the Bible, and a very, very brief message, very brief um word from from the the guy who's running the house and then we would have a work program which usually involved us going and there was a church attached to the rehab or should I say the rehab was attached to a church and it was sort of quite a large church by the standards of South Wales probably quite small compared to most American churches but it was a, a fairly large building and we used to go there every day and we would be in charge of cleaning it the maintenance they had a little sort of cafe and coffee shop there that we would be in charge of cleaning and running and um and then we'd have to go home and we'd have to sort of clean the house and we'd have to do any repairs on the house and things like that and then in the evening there'd be another um bible study another devotional um we had to go to church on saturday night and on sunday morning and on sunday evening every weekend so it was it was quite to my mind it was quite intense it was it was a lot of you know this god stuff and i i stayed there thinking i'll just be here for a couple of weeks and then i'm going and all of the people there and all of the people that were involved the staff the different people that were coming in and out of the home um they were just they were just so gracious and so loving and all of the people there you know were at various stages in their walk some of them had been saved some of them like me had real no real interest in it and i continue to try to be 
I wasn't deliberately being extremely difficult then because I was off the drink and I had at least some sort of sense of propriety. You know, I, I thought, well, these people are helping me. I can't be rude to them all the time. But I used to delight in asking them all the difficult questions that I could get my hands on. And as we were looking in the Bible, I thought, oh, well, I'll ask them about, you know, this bit where it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does that mean we've got no free will? And 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 all of the kind of typical questions that people will try and trip people up on with the Bible. And they continued to be loving and gracious and kind. And they would try and answer my questions and they would be as helpful as they could. And for a long time, I kind of resisted and I didn't want to know. But there were a lot of books in the house that had been donated. Uh, it, was, it was quite an impressive library that they had that had been donated, you know, some very old books and some very expensive looking books. And I, I sort of gradually started tentatively looking at one or two of them. And I didn't read a great deal when I was there, but I, I read some, um, I read just some bits and pieces offering some kind of basic apologetic arguments, you know, and, and, and for the first time I started thinking, there is a slight possibility that there might be a little bit of truth to some of this. And that was, that was the little sort of crack in my armor. And that was, that was all that happened for quite a long time. And I was there for, let me think, almost four months. And I'll, I'll never forget the day. Obviously, I'll, I'll never forget the day that I was saved. Because we were in a church service, which, you know, I, I had to go to. And it was a Saturday night meeting. And um, the the gentleman who'd actually come to my house, Kenny, the, the one that had come to me and, and I'd been extremely rude to him, he was, he was preaching there. He was one of the preachers. And he was preaching on uh, Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> and I remember at the end of the service... And I, I'd walked into the service with the same mindset. There is a very slight possibility there might be a little bit of truth to some of this, but I still want, don't want your Christian nonsense. Right. And I listened to everything he said. And at the end of the service, they said, you know, we'll bow our heads to pray now. And I, and I put my head down to pray. And I, I can't describe, I can't really describe, the best way I can describe what happened is it was almost as if somebody told me something that I'd, I'd never heard before and I, and I instantly believed them. I, all of a sudden I knew that it was all true. And it was, there was no sort of massive um, choir of angels. There was no enormous religious experience. There was no uh, dramatic event going on in my head or anything like that. There was, it was almost like somebody just flicked a little switch and, and I knew in some way that I can't possibly describe that it, without doubt, it is all absolutely true. And, I, and I, I can't describe the shock that went through me. I just thought, how, how did I not believe this before? And it just kind of, I don't know, it, it was almost like a very, very small firework going off in my head. And I just knew. And, and at the same moment, I thought, Jesus really did die for me. And I really do owe everything to him and he can release me from everything. And he, and he will save me if, if I repent and if I turn to him and, and all this stuff just went through in a fraction of a second. And, and at that point I was saved. And, and I, I think I was more surprised than anybody, although a lot of people were very surprised. Wow. 
So you you had this sudden kind of intuitive knowledge that mm. it was all true. It was mm. such a, a like a switch that's so interesting, like a sudden paradigm shift. It wasn't mm. as if you had this prolonged intellectual struggle. It was nope. like you were introduced to the truth, you know, by perhaps that little or the book or maybe something you read uh, that that somehow infiltrated your mind and your heart and then i guess yeah. you know at some point being exposed to what you were exposed to you mm. you, s- you spoke about the possibility or the presence and the person of jesus and who he was and that he could save you and in certain Christian terms, it's called the gospel. There was something true about that for you. Can you, for those who who really may not know what that realization was or what the gospel is, could you explain that just briefly? Yes, absolutely. I I mean, I sort of hid in in plenty of meetings, whether in church meetings or meetings in the house, um, that everyone, every man, every woman, every child is is essentially sinful. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us is imperfect. Um, nobody, no matter how how hard they try, can possibly live a perfect life. And yet God's perfect law requires that of us. And yet at the same time, because he is so loving and because he is so just and merciful, he understands that we can't live up to that. He understands that we can't live up to that law. And rather than insisting that we do, rather than insisting that we pay the price for our sins, he sent Jesus Christ, he sent his own son, God in the flesh came and he died and he sacrificed himself. And he allowed himself to absorb the full weight of my sin and the full punishment for my sin. And rather than me trying to earn my way into God's good books, All that was required of me was to completely put my faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did and the sacrifice that he made and to to repent of my sins, that to um, acknowledge my sin and acknowledge that I need him and I can't earn my salvation and I can't earn his love and to just completely surrender myself to him and and give myself to him and, and know that every sin that I have committed and every sin that I will commit has been paid for by his blood just because... I put my faith in him. That must have been really a, like you say, um, a relief of burden, like the passage that was read that evening, mm. that um, that you give your burden over to Christ, mm. and uh, that He carries it for you. Yeah, and that that's really a beautiful thing. Once you surrendered to that reality and surrendered to the person of Jesus, um, I love what you said that that you were surprised just as much as everyone around you was. <laughs> yes. I can't I can't imagine really. I mean, you you put your head down for a prayer, mm. and and there was obviously some willingness to participate in the prayer. Then you you raise your head, um, really with a whole new world and a whole new mm. worldview. I, it sounds like, why don't you describe what happened after that, that point? I would, I would like to say I was always slightly jealous and I, I realized jealousy isn't, isn't a very Christian thing to feel. Um, but I have to confess I'm occasionally jealous when 
I hear of other people's conversion experiences, the moments when when other people sort of come to this this knowledge, come to this understanding of of Jesus and His grace. And some people have this very dramatic encounter with the Lord. They have they'll have a very you know very occasionally. I think some people will have a vision, or some people will have this enormous kind of physical feeling, or, or something huge will happen to them. To me, I was just kind of wandering about in a state almost of shock for a few days. And I wanted there to be some enormous um, transformation in my life. But the reality was, although I knew and I understood and I, I understood that I was saved as the sort of shock gradually moved away, I hoped that I'd be a much, much better person straight away. And of course, the sad reality is that it doesn't always work like that. The something that did um, the the one thing that definitely did happen right at that moment was up until that point, I'd been in the rehab for a few months, and I I kind of knew that although I hadn't drunk anything for a few months, I I knew that I still was at a stage where if I left, it wouldn't be long before I fell down the hole again. I knew that I was kind of drifting through on willpower. I knew that it was only because I was there surrounded by support, surrounded by people who cared, surrounded by rules and structure that I hadn't drunk. And I knew that if I left, I would. And I was kind of waiting for that to go away. And then from that day until this, so 10 years ago this week, I have never for even the slightest moment had any inclination whatsoever to drink again. And I am constantly baffled that I ever wanted to. And that's not, I, I'm not sort of um, judgmental towards people who, who do like a drink or who, or even people who struggle with drink. But I'll walk past a bar or something and I'll see people drinking and it, it just seems an alien thing to me. I think, well, why, why did I want to do that? And that was the biggest transformation that happened immediately. But then sort of gradually, I I came to realize that I didn't want to leave the rehab yet because I was surrounded by all these people who suddenly were my brothers in Christ. And I was going to a church with all these people who were my, essentially like my, my family, my adoptive family, you know. Um, and gradually I began to change and gradually I became very sorrowful about the dreadful person that I'd been. And at the same time, thankful to Jesus that he was beginning to change me and it was at this point that I realized that I'd spent all my life thinking I was very clever and then all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't which mm -hmm. I think was his way of kindly showing me you've got no you've got no place being arrogant and looking down on people um yes and then you know I I stayed in the rehab then for I stayed on for quite some time and I eventually became staff there and I um I volunteered as a staff member and I lived in the home and I helped with new people coming in and mentoring people. Um, and I also was then involved with the worship at the church. So I, I then used to lead worship. I played guitar and sang. Um, and I became quite a, I became very active in the church. Actually, I was helping with discipleship. I was helping out with the youth groups. Um, I was still going up, you know, every day and, and cleaning and doing maintenance and things like that. And it, all of a sudden, this whole new world opened up to me. And instead of being in this rehab, desperately hoping that I wouldn't start drinking again, all of a sudden, it wasn't a rehab to me, it was home to me. 
and the church became my life and and my fellow christians became my life and and i wanted to do things to help and i wanted to sort of pour myself into into the, the church community really so it was yeah it was a pretty dramatic change gradually yes it sounds amazing and f- i i first want to say congratulations on your sobriety but i i oh. I, I totally appreciate the fact here that you're really what i hear you saying is that this is part of the transformation that god mm. made in your heart this this Absolutely. sudden uh disinclination to drink i mean that mm. that's a just an amazing amazing thing that you you lost the the desire totally absolutely and, and i mean it's you know when i tell people that i used to be an alcoholic and you know i would, i was a terrible and i really really awful alcoholic like like i said earlier i would lose weeks at a time months uh not not months but weeks at a time would just disappear and i wouldn't have the faintest idea you know and sometimes i'd wake up in the street at three o'clock in the morning sleeping behind a bin or something i had no idea where i'd been um i'd wake up with bruises i think i used to get into fights and things i don't remember um and i would tell people about these things and they'd say oh this you know this wonderful well done you and I, I always try and explain to them, it, I genuinely, I it's nothing to do with me. And I, and I try not to come off across with this sort of false modesty and things, but I say it's it's genuinely nothing to do with me. It would be almost like congratulating me um, for having the blood clot on my brain removed. And I'd have to go, look, I didn't do anything. I just, they just gave me anesthetic and the surgeon took it. I You can't congratulate me on getting rid of my blood clot. And in the same way, you can't, I, I don't want people to congratulate me for being sober for, you know, a little over 10 years now. Jesus Christ took out, as, as it says in the Bible, I will take out your heart of stone and give your heart of flesh. He took out mm. those dreadful things in me and he put better things in me. And the ways that I've I've hopefully changed now and, you know, become something of a better person. And I I definitely have my flaws and my faults. But the the good things about me now are entirely because of Jesus and the change that he's worked in my life. And the bad things about me now are just the things that I'm foolishly hanging on to and I need to get rid of. So yes, um, you know, I, I've i changed so much that I desperately, I, I definitely don't want to drink again, but it's, it's genuinely, it's entirely Jesus has done it. I'd like to take a break from our story for a moment to tell you about a special upcoming evening with the C.S. Lewis Institute where singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson will be addressing questions like, how does our own creativity reflect our Creator? Does art glorify God? And what is the role of imagination in the arts in the life of a Christian? There will also be a Q&A session with the live listening audience. This wonderful online event will be held on Friday evening, June 18th. There is no charge, but you do need to register. For more information and to register, please go to www.cssinstitute.org forward slash art. Now back to our story. Wow, that's that's really amazing and an amazing testimony really of a, the power of Christ in someone's life once they surrender. And surrender is a mm. very, very difficult thing. But, yes. Uh, it's 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 <laughs> but you're putting your hands in the one who wants what's best for you mm. and that you can find uh, an abundant life it sounds like you have found now, i do have a question um 
you had, when you came to a place of surrender, you right. said that you had come also to a place of understanding um, the not a bit of a knowledge of God and who Christ was and what he did and, and that you accepted that and you moved into where church is your adopted family, which again is a beautiful picture of what the church mm-hmm. should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm curious though, in terms of what about, remember when you were an atheist and mm. you were raising all those difficult questions and hard places in scripture and mm. what about this and what about that? Mm. What about all those things, those intellectual issues that you once raised um, as a Christian who was coming to to know more about God and about Christ mm. and the Bible um, and someone who's naturally clever, I would say, um, again, uh, by the grace of God, it's a, you have probably a very decent intellect, and I'm sure you're a curious person and want to resolve some of those issues that are often posed against Christianity. Um, yeah. In your in your in the last ten years, have you um, addressed some of those issues? Have you, you know, taken an intellectual kind of path in your faith as well? Yes, I've I've definitely tried to. Um... I I find as time goes by, I'm more and more interested. I think initially, I kind of had to tuck those questions away. And I, I hated the idea of sort of switching my brain off. I didn't, in, I didn't necessarily just decide that I wasn't going to try and answer those. But initially, I just kind of thought, I realized it on, on some, in some strange way, on some level, that Jesus had a lot of work to do in me. And, and I, I kind of saw him doing it gradually. So I tucked those things away for some time. Some of them, some of the difficult questions then I, I started to resolve just, just by reading the Bible more. Um, and then as, as time went by, then I became more and more interested in them. And, and I, I've almost erred more towards the intellectual side of reading around Christianity, I think, because that's, that's kind of how God wired me. And then I became fairly interested in apologetics some years ago. Um, and I, I started buying more books and I started attending, you know, seminars and conferences and things like that. And all of a sudden now I've got, I've got several hundred books that I desperately want to read that I think would resolve a lot of questions, but I also have two small children. So I find that (laughs) as, as my, as my desire for more understanding and more knowledge grows, the amount of time that I has has shrunk that that I have has has shrunk rapidly. But what I am hoping is that as time goes by, I will be able to sort of do more reading and more study and things. But I, I did start. Um, I I think I mentioned to you previously. I, I started my own apologetics organization, and I'm by no means particularly knowledgeable about apologetics. But my my interest was I want to try and find answers, and I think other people want answers as well. So let's look at them together. So I, I wanted to to sort of aim for that kind of aspect of Christianity because I, I know very well that there are answers out there. And I, I think that there are answers that, you know, Christianity hasn't just popped up. It's been around for 2,000 years. I would be foolish to think that I was the first person that had these questions. So, um, yes, I, I have heard towards the sort of more intellectual side and some of the questions I've answered, but... But a lot of them are, are still to be answered as far as I'm concerned. And I'm, 
I'm just looking forward to finding the answers, really. First of all, I want to affirm that that I love that you've started some kind of an apologetics organization and your and your posture towards it that we're learning together. Mm. I think that that's an amazing reflection of of your humility, but also your intellectual curiosity and your openness to go wherever the evidence leads, which mm. which is you know where we should all be. I do wonder. I I can hear just the skeptic and. Um, you know, scratching his head, going back earlier in your conversation where you were drawn towards atheism because you wanted it to be true in a sense. And so you were, you were looking towards that and uh, looking for things that affirmed that and statements Mm -hmm. and, and things. I can just hear in the back of my head, a skeptic saying, well, you just want Christianity be- to be true. And so you're going to look for answers mm. that confirm your perspective. Mm. How, how would you uh, speak to someone who raised that objection? Um, probably, probably in a few ways, really. I mean, for to begin with, I desperately wanted Christianity to not be true right up to the moment when I suddenly realized it was. Mm. Um and it's it's difficult to it's difficult to intellectualize what I suppose we'd call a religious experience, whatever that religious experience might be, whether it's extremely dramatic or whether it's sort of quite understated as mine was. So I I, I had that moment, I had that experience, and I, and I knew it was true. And you know, all of the epistemologists out there will be sort of ready to pounce on me or. or sort of disregard that I suppose um and yet I desperately wanted atheism to be true so I decided that it was and didn't really do a great deal of investigation into it either way whereas with Christianity I didn't want it to be true and I suddenly realized that it was in a way that I I can't put into words how certain I am there must have been something something outside of me put that into me because I wasn't looking for it and I didn't want it. And it suddenly popped up with a conviction that I couldn't possibly overturn. Mm. And since then, I've, I have investigated it and I have looked at the questions and I have sort of thought about some of the evidence and I have thought about things like the historicity of the resurrection the reliability of the Bible, um, you know, the transmission of Bible documents, the some of the philosophical arguments regarding, you know, whether the argument for moral knowledge and, you know, cosmological arguments and all this kind of thing. And, and it's very difficult to deny that there is something about Christianity that has withstood the intellectual assault of 2000 years and has stood extremely strongly. And there are aspects of Christianity that are accepted even by the most sort of hostile um, opponents, really. You know, you, you get people like people like Bart Ehrman will defend to the hilt the fact that somebody called Jesus really walked around on the earth. He'll defend the transmission of the documents, the, the Bible documents to some extent, you know, and atheists, philosophers of religion will say, theism is an intellectually credible 
position if you really look at the arguments. Now, they, they won't they won't accept those arguments, but even people who are extremely intelligent, extremely well-read, and extremely knowledgeable about all of the all of the um, facts will say there is a there is some nugget of possible truth that they don't accept themselves. So, all that's just kind of a roundabout way of saying I didn't want Christianity to be true, and now that I've looked at it after having my experience, I can say if you look at the evidence, it is it is genuinely overwhelming, you know. And if and if anybody is listening and they have considered the possibility of looking at the evidence start with the evidence for the resurrection and the historicity of jesus and go from there because it's it's genuinely just enormously overwhelming that's good advice especially for someone who might actually be open enough to consider looking at mm. what is out there to be seen and to be read and to be considered is there anything else that you would like to advise the, perhaps someone who might be listening who's a, who is a curious skeptic, who might be open to consider or think about the things of God? Um, I, would, I would say, I mean, if somebody is curious about Christianity or if they're quite hostile to it, I, I think one of, the, one of the first things to realize is we can't, how do we with this? Don't judge, don't judge Christ by Christians. Mm -hmm. Don't judge Jesus and Christianity by the perceived lives and actions of either people who are, well, people who are professing Christians, whether, whether they are Christian or not, or they just wear the label or they're genuine believers. Um, I think one of the one of the most popular ways to attack Christianity in general is to point out the ways that Christians have failed and then use that to try and undermine the truths of Christianity, whereby the Bible is very clear and any any thinking Christian will be very upfront about saying we are all fallible, we are all sinful, we all make mistakes. So you can't judge Christianity by the actions of Christians because, you know, we, we make a lot of we make a lot of mistakes and goodness knows I make enough mistakes. Um, but just look at Christ and don't for now worry about Christians. And that obviously that's not a licensed, that's not saying that Christians should have license to act however they want. We should be held to a higher standard, but yeah, focus on Christ rather than on us. I think that's great advice. And to those Christians who are listening, who probably very compelled by your story, especially by those who entered into your life, Kenny and um, Faye. Faye, Faye, and <laughs> the example that they provided of just mm. and and those in the rehab, just continually loving, kind, patient, mm. yeah. uh, serving you, just mm. listening and and waiting and in the face of, of your, I guess, lack of gracious response. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm very impressed by that. Uh, how would you advise Christians best to engage with those who are resistant or not interested or not willing or kind of like what you were? Um, first of all, I mean, I think probably one of the most important rules of any any kind of 
personal evangelism or anything like that is is to to treat every individual as an individual because i think it can be very easy to get into a conversation with a non-believer whether they're hostile or open or, or neutral to the whole idea of christianity it's so easy to approach the conversation with a kind of preconceived idea of well you know you're an atheist so you believe in darwinian evolution and you believe in you know you believe that science has all of the answers to everything and you believe that you know jesus was a myth and and i think that your preconceptions can distort the way that you you have a conversation with them um but they're all individuals and whether they're hostile or open they have a reason for that i remember i went to a, a, a apologetics kind of training weekend and i went there still a little bit full of myself thinking yeah i'll learn all these i'll learn all these apologetics arguments and i'll i'll be able to convince somebody into christianity and i was still thinking that way then um and one of the first the first session that we actually had the lecturer stood up and he said if you've come here thinking that you're going to learn sort of five irrefutable logical rules or five irrefutable logical arguments for christianity and you'll be some kind of apologetic ninja and you'll you'll convince somebody into christianity he said, You've, you're starting with the wrong mindset. He said, we're, we're about talking to people. We're about engaging with, with people. And you can't treat a person as an argument. So, sorry, I, I got rather long-winded then. But, but yes, in a nutshell, just approach them as, as an individual and a person and ask them why they believe or don't believe whatever it is they believe or disbelieve and think properly and deeply about, about their reasons for it. Well, Craig, I, I do appreciate your story, your transparency. Uh, you, you have lived a, a beautiful and tragic life or a tragic <laughs> and beautiful life. Uh, um, however that works and whatever it is in whatever form, I'm sure you're very grateful for everything that's happened in your life because it, has, it, has, it has brought you to the person that you are now, to the faith mm-hmm. that you have now and the... Mm-hmm of the purposes you have now. And obviously you have a beautiful family and, I um, do, yes. and a lot, uh, just a dramatic transformation in your life. Just <laughs> so much to celebrate. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, we are, we are pri- privileged to be a, a part of listening to your story. So thank, thank you, you for, so for coming on today and, and really sharing pleasure. it all. Yeah. And I hope that what is uh, the name of your apologetics organizations and and contacts so that if people are interested in more about uh, what that is uh, mm-hmm. could you tell us a little bit about that yes um it's 136 apologetics uh i i wanted to sort of always be aware that um that evangelism and apologetics really has to be jiv- driven by by jesus so it's named after first corinthians uh, chapter 3 verse 6 where where paul wrote um I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So, yes, 136 Apologetics. My, I mean, my main personal interest is outreach to Jehovah's Witnesses, which is a, a whole different story again, but um, that's what I, I tend to personally focus on a lot. But we do organize sort of seminars and, and things like that for general apologetics as well. You can find us on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube. Um, and we're hoping obviously to, once, COVID is all over and all of the lockdowns stop and everything. We're hoping to have a lot more sort of just general training and um, 
and outreach to people and, and just learning more and more about all the difficult questions together and yeah and hopefully taking the gospel to the world yeah that's terrific i'll include uh, information about your your organization in the episode notes for anybody who again who wants to learn more about it or perhaps reach out to you thanks again craig for coming on board and uh, we are just leaving encouraged by your story so thank Thank you. you very much Thanks for tuning in to the Side B podcast today to hear Craig's story. You can find out more about 136 Apologetics and how to connect with Craig in the episode notes. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me at, by email at the Side B podcast at cslewisinstitute.org. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and social network. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll see how someone else flips the record of their life.